listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please check the ICDL parent website at the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning for a free virtual floor time consultation or for the weekly parent support meetings. We aim to help you implement your program at home using the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, or DIR, taking into account your child's developmental level, their individual differences, and using your relationship with them to help promote and support their development. Welcome, listeners. We are back this week, and I have with us today Eunice Lee, who is a social worker, a DIR expert training leader, And she has been learning about DIR, the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, since 2006. We did a podcast with her a year or two ago called Self-Regulation Starts With Us. She was part of the big DIR floor time study at York University that introduced me to floor time about eight or nine years ago. Welcome back, Eunice. Nice to be back, Daria. It's great to have you back, and I don't, I, I think you know this, but if you don't, um, you are one of the main reasons that I know anything about floor time because of that study, and uh, Eunice was the first DIR coach that my family had with our son, and that was eight years ago. Hard to believe. Wow, time flies. Time does fly. So today, uh, the reason I invited Eunice back is because we had that podcast with Dr. Glavinsky a few weeks back on interoception, and he talked a lot about doing work with parents to focus on that sense of what you feel inside. And similar to the self-reg podcast with Dr. Shanker that Eunice followed up with me about self-regulation starts with us. If you are looking for introception in your child and trying to understand what our children are feeling inside and that they might not even know when they're hungry, they might not even know when they're angry, um, then it it really benefits working with the parents and finding out, do the parents know what they're feeling inside and can they tap into that? And once they have that experience, it then helps them understand how to notice that with their children and go from there. So Eunice, in the last podcast that we had, the self-regulation starts with us, you had said, determining what dysregulates you requires self-awareness. And that uh, parents that in the study that you have done and in your work in general with families, they came in at very different points of self-awareness. So some needed a lot more support to be self-aware when they were starting to get frustrated and dysregulated. And what that looks like in one person can be very different in another person. So I thought this would be a fantastic topic to discuss today. And why don't we just begin with what you thought of and what came to mind when I asked you to do this podcast? No, it was, I, was very excited to come back. Um, I think talking about my work with parents and using the DIR model is something I always enjoy doing. Um, And I've learned a lot uh, from the parents that I've worked with as well. And so I guess the first thing I wanna say or figure out with you is the difference between interoception and self-awareness because I don't think they're used interchangeably at all. It's just that Dr. Glavinsky talking about working with parents on interoception reminded me of you guys talking about working on self-reg with parents. Um, But either way, whether we're talking about, um, well, I guess it is kind of the same because Dr. Glavinsky talked about noticing, you know, if when you're feeling hungry, when you're feeling tense, when you're feeling this, but he said it's also about the emotions that you're feeling inside. And I guess self-awareness, when we're thinking of DIR floor time and the first capacity being regulation and able to share attention with other people and then engage with them and then move towards inter- interactions with them. If we are not aware that we're getting dysregulated, that 
affects everything else. Right. I mean, I think a lot in a lot of the work that I've done with families, um, what the, you know, as much as I'm focused um, on what the child or adolescent is bringing to the interaction, um, what their strengths are, what their challenges are, um, I'm also acutely aware, especially when parents are very wanting to roll their sleeves up and get very involved at what their contributions are, I think, to the interaction as well. Because oftentimes, sort of the parent-child dyad, sort of they, they sort of affect one another. So they impact each other when, um, you know, a lot of, when I was learning about DIR and its roots in infant mental health, we talk a lot about um, the child and parent dance. And if you're thinking of interaction, early interaction like dancing, um, you can think of that if one partner moves quicker, then um, by default, then the other partner in order to catch up or stay in the dance also has to move quicker. And the same works if one of the partners slows down. Then, you know, how, how does that dance work and how do we keep that dance going? Um, when we're thinking about it that way, then I think we have to look at both the child and the parent and what they each bring so that we can support them both. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And certainly I understand that notion of parents coming in with different levels of self-awareness, but can you give us some examples of what that might look like? And, and I can start off by remembering something that I read on ICDL's website where they, they go through each of the functional, emotional, developmental capacities with a little blurb of a case example where perhaps um, a parent is very focused on a task and the child is not so interested in that task, but the parent just wants to get this task done. And in DIR floor time, we're less about getting our agenda met and more about joining the child in their interests. And so how, how making that parent understand that and bringing that into their awareness then allowed them to step back with their agenda and just enjoy being with their child. Now that's kind of a general example, but how does that look when you're with a family? What, what kinds of things do you see? And let's say right off the bat, because I know you say this all the time as well, and I know this is an important thing in DIR in general, is that we're not blaming parents for anything. We're not saying parents should do this or shouldn't do that or... or um, making them feel bad about the way that they naturally feel comfort or discomfort with their child, what we're trying to do is match everybody's individual differences in a way that supports each other. And I think that's what you're talking about in terms of the dance. Right. I think, I think it's really important that when you're looking at doing dyadic work, we have to look at both at what the child and the parent both bring um, to the interaction. And I think um, going back to your question a little bit around what happens or your example of what happens if a parent sort of has a different idea maybe than the child. And I think what I've, how I've always ap approached that is not necessarily that the parent has to give that up because um, I think oftentimes that task or that agenda item or thing that they want to accomplish fits somewhere, I think, onto that map of, of goals or, or short-term goals or long-term goals. I do um, often see that maybe um, the parent's agenda may not be the next step um, as to where the child can go in that moment. Um, I think I oftentimes remind the parents that I work with, um, we need to be, we need to really think about the attunement piece and sort of that, what you were saying and what we always say in DIR in terms of um, joining the child and meeting the child where they're at, is that it's, it's, I see it sometimes as more of a timing issue, is that that's what we have to do to start with. 
right? Whether we can then within that interaction accomplish what the original task was, it depends on many, many different factors. But I think it's, so I like to assure parents that we're not setting aside their goals necessarily. I do wanna understand them. I do wanna hear them out because I think that's important in the grand scheme of the dietic work that we wanna do. But I do also want to help understand or maybe start to think about almost a bit like a timeline of what we have to, what we can accomplish now and what might be a longer term goal. So, and I find that that approach um, eases a lot of that potentially, you know, anxiety or worry that the parent has, right? Um, I do think that um, in all of the parents I've worked with, their tasks come from a place of sort of wanting their child to do well. And so because it comes from such a good place, I wanna make sure that I understand it and I hear it, but I do wanna help them um, enhance their understanding of their child's developmental profile or individual profile, where they're at with their functional emotional developmental capacities so that we can appropriately sort of place that task on where, where, where it could be or what that task in some ways means to the parent, right? Maybe it's not about the task at all, but it's about, um, for example, for a lot of parents, it might be about, it might make my child a little bit more like his or her peers, right? So then that opens up a different understanding that I can have of the parent and appreciation for what they're bringing, I think, to the interaction, what they're bringing to the session. Um, and as a mental health person, as a mental health clinician, that's important to me um, because I have to take that into consideration along with all the, all the, um, the ind individual profile or the needs of the child. I like to also consider the needs of the parent and hear them out in terms of where, what they're thinking because I found that that helps me in our, helps us in our DIR work. Absolutely. I know that when parents read engaging autism or they read information about how to do floor time, there's still this gap for, especially for families that are new to the approach of, I don't know how to do it myself. I read all the books. I understand the theory. I understand the model. I understand this, but now I don't know what to do. And I think this is the important Part that you bring in that coaching is so valuable for and you know we're not saying 40 hours a week like ABA sessions we're saying once a month once a week once every other week however often you feel you need the support maybe more at the beginning and less as you go forward having someone there with that experience that clinician that practitioner who can take that in and understand what your goals are and help you match them to where your child is at. Like you said, I think that's, that's such an important piece. And I guess we're, we're sort of covering our awareness of the parent, but then how do we bring that self-awareness to the parent or how do we foster more self-awareness? And I'm guessing you're going to say by watching videos and doing reflection, but maybe you have other ways. <laughs> no, you took the words right out of my mouth, Daria. That is sort of, as you were asking that question, that's um, one of the ways that I found um, is a very powerful way to look at um, and to discuss self-awareness of the parent. Um, I think because oftentimes when we're in the interaction, and even as a seasoned, even as an experienced clinician myself, we're thinking of so many things and we're considering so many things. We're thinking about the environment. We're thinking about the activity. We're thinking about the interaction. It can be really hard to also think about and also consider the self-awareness. But what I found in working with families in the past is when they have the opportunity to really be able to focus and, and see what was happening from almost a third person perspective. So if you're watching it on a screen, and I've actually also done this with some of the students that I mentor, is that when they show me something that, you know, they're thinking about that we can almost reflect on it 
after the fact, um, it really sort of frees us up to be able to look at it a little bit more deeply and to think about it. Because oftentimes interactions, there's so many things happening. And so it can be really challenging to do that, I think, in the moment. I know the first few times that I watched myself doing floor time, I was pretty amazed because I, I thought of myself as someone who's so attuned to my son and can really almost anticipate every thought he's having and what he's going to do next. And then to see yourself on video and me just completely ignoring some of the cues he was sending me, even verbal cues, and just going ahead with the next plan that I had to make his floor time fun it, it really was an eye opener. I think, I mean, I think the same thing happens for clinicians. Um, I know that the same thing happened for me as I was learning DIR. And that's part of, um, that's part of why I love DIR so much, but there is sort of a growth and we're always learning. So even, you know, 14, 15 years in, I'm continuing to learn and deepen my practice, which I think I enjoy because it continues to be challenging work. And we used to, say that it's a bit like peeling an onion because there's more and more layers underneath. And so um, I think that speaks to the complexities of child development interaction, that sort of there are so many interesting places that it can go and interest and new things that we can think about. But um, the opportunity to really sit and reflect and look at really look at videos um, I often will either with students or with parents I've also done where I've paused the video at a random point and really just asked, so what were you thinking in that moment? Because um, I think that whether they are professionals or parents, I think I, I want to make sure that I acknowledge and pay attention to all the things that were going through that parent or professional's head and all the things that they were thinking. And so instead of, I, I, I hope, and I want to sort of, in some ways, deter them from thinking, oh, I missed that, to thinking there were so many other things going on. And it seems obvious right now to me because we've paused the video on it or because I've seen it now a week later, even, you know, an hour later. But in the moment, there are so many things that we're thinking that it, it is very challenging. And so um, I think it, but it makes us a little bit more aware. If we want to bring it back to self-awareness, it makes us a bit more aware maybe the next time that there's a similar interaction or that maybe just as you said, clinicians do, parents do, if we're rushing to think that we want to have something else planned, we might pause and, and check in and see, is, is my child um, communicating something else to me? whether it be verbally, non-verbally, through actions. And so I think the only way to learn that is through practice and is through having these reflective discussions around, oh, well, it's, it's okay. It's okay if I missed it the first time. It's okay if I missed it the 10th time, right? Because we're all still learning um, and it is, everybody learns at a different pace. And that's the great thing about the concept of relationship in the DIR model where the R is relationship. I know um, Dr. Daniel Siegel talks about that concept of repair. You can always go back and repair a relationship. It's not something that's written in stone. And if there's a cue that your child's been sending you over and over again, and, and maybe you didn't notice until you go to an OT and an OT says, an occupational therapist says, oh, your child's doing that because they're unable to do this. And you're like, oh, oh my goodness, I've had these expectations that were too high and my poor child's been struggling. And then you, you feel terrible. And we want to make sure that we let parents know you did the best you could with what you had. <laughs> I mean, of course, I think I wish I knew about more about DIR floor time before I had my child. And then as he was born and I noticed all these sensory issues. I didn't know they were sensory issues until I learned about DIR floor time when he was three. <laughs> so there's always stuff we wish we could have done better, but the point is to just do the best we can now and continue to aim for that improvement. 
And I see part of my, part of sort of my role, again, as the mental health clinician, and because I'm so interested in, in working with parents and kids, is partly sort of what was the parent thinking? Because 99%, 100% of the time, they're trying to support the child potentially in another way. Right. So I do see that part of I think and I think this is the case with any DIR clinician is part of it is helping the parent to understand the child um, using the DIR model. So looking at his or her FEDCs, functional, emotional, developmental capacities, looking at their individual profile, because oftentimes what I found, at least in my experience, is that it might be that um, within our DIR work, we're actually enhancing the parent's understanding of the child using that lens. So obviously all parents come to us as clinicians as the child's, as the expert in their child, what they like doing, what their, even what their idiosyncrasies are. I think what we're as clinicians layering on is some of that, um, maybe that DIR specific framework around how to understand it, right? So parents inherently know oh, he's, um, my child is, he really doesn't like that, or I can tell he's starting to get anxious, and those sort of things, which I think as clinicians, we rely on parents to be able to share with us their insight, and what we're, what we're able to add to that, hopefully um, in a complementary way, is that understanding of maybe why, or what, what else might be happening in that moment. So I think when you go back to sort of if a parent and a child within an interaction almost seem a little bit, if I can use the word mismatched, right? Because the parent might be thinking one thing and the child might be thinking of something else, that oftentimes part of that work has to be almost getting inside that parent's head to say, well, what were you thinking? Well, let's take a look at what the child was thinking in that moment. And how do we sort of find a place for the two of you to meet in some ways, right? Um, from an interaction perspective, at least, because I think um, part of that work is um, the importance of that is to clarify maybe any misunderstandings, because oftentimes parents can also maybe assume, well, he doesn't like it when I do that, or um, she, she really likes this toy, I have to really get it for her, right? Um, but maybe in that moment, the child was eyeing something else. And this might be a new experience for the, for the parent because, you know, um, it, it is possible that at times sort of, um, because parents are so used to it and they're so, they're so well-versed in what their child knows and prefers and likes to do, that those, those times when maybe the child sort of subtly looks at something else, it's so easy to miss for a parent because they're so well-versed in sort of, no, 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 these are the five things that he or she really, really likes, you know? And I might ask the question if we're watching a video, is it possible for them to have a sixth thing? What do you think, right? If I pause the video or if, I, if we watch the video in the right spot, the parent might think, oh, well, I never would have noticed it because I was so concerned with getting those five things ready and there for them because that, that's what they've always liked. And so it's kind of turning a new page, opening a, a new window for the parent to say, it's at times a child might, you know, might offer us or might try something new and that's okay. And how do we explore that? How do we expand that? That's such a good point I didn't think about. And it is a big topic because I think a lot of times as parents, we are so panicky about when the next might meltdown might come or when the next thing that's going to be really hard for my child is going to come and we want to make sure we make it easy for them and therefore we're going to keep doing things the same way that works but at the same time we want our children to grow and expand and be flexible and think and relate with different people in different ways and so we've got to keep that open mind and really watch for those cues because, yeah, you know, my son watched Thomas and Friends forever. And then all of a sudden, he started watching Paw Patrol. And then all of a sudden, he started watching PJ Masks. 
And all of a sudden, now he's watching Sonic Boom. <laughs> so, you know, I could still keep buying him PJ Masks toys and showing him PJ Masks things because that's what he likes and getting him a PJ Masks costume when really, guess what? He's being Sonic the Hedgehog this year. <laughs> so that's a silly example, but just in, in terms of, um, you know, screen time type interests, but just in terms of other things like going to the indoor playground, which we can't go to during COVID, but he always wants to go into that ball pit and throw the balls and, or he always wants to go and shoot the balls in that cannon, or he always wants to go down that particular slide. Well, then one day he wanted to do rock climbing and mama had a heart attack because I thought oh, he's going to fall and hurt himself. <laughs> but guess what? He did it with dad and he made it to the top. And that was like the greatest thing ever for the next few months. And not only was it something new, but it also helped him with his gross motor skills and climbing and whatever other OT type things that um, he had going on. So I never, I never thought of that until you just pointed it out, but that's another very, um, I think, delicate point in working with parents is that they are always really trying and always have this best interest in mind, but we're also accustomed to being really dysregulated and upset by seeing our kids upset. So we want to keep the peace. Right. And why wouldn't you? Exactly. It makes total sense, right? Parents um, have seen it. They've seen the difficult moments. They've experienced them with their child. And so it makes perfect sense that um, parents would want to be really careful and want to be really cautious, especially if these meltdowns or moments can sort of start to balloon, right? It, it, can, it can lead into, you know, time-wise, experience-wise, you know, um, I think it's natural, I think, for parents to have those concerns. And sometimes that might be uh, the benefit if you do have a professional that's working with you a bit, because we like to think of it as sort of, we wanna be the guinea pigs. We would rather be the guinea pigs than to have the parents be because um, when, when it comes to trying new things or maybe um, suggesting something that's a little bit out of the box, um, those sorts of things, it makes sense for the professional to do because sort of we're also there to help support the parent if the child doesn't like it. And if it does lead to that um, meltdown that the parent was worried about to begin with, because that certainly has happened too. We can be wrong about our suggestion or our gut. Um, but I think in, you know, maybe if we, if we want to bring it back to self-awareness, I think it takes a certain amount of confidence regulation to, for a parent to say, even for a clinician, but for a parent much more so, to be like, I'm going to try this and see what happens, or I'm not going to have that available that he always, you know, usually, he or she always usually goes to, and I'm okay with seeing how this goes, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think there is a certain degree of we have to try things out to see, and then at the same time, the other complexity of we could try things out and it could work beautifully today but it could tank next time we try it right so it doesn't mean that just because we tried it today it's going to work forever and the same the opposite is the same as well is just because it worked terribly today it doesn't mean mean it's going to work terribly the next day either so I think it's it's difficult it's challenging but I think it's important as a clinician, especially as a mental health clinician, to acknowledge those parents' very valid concerns, right? Around, no, 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 we can't do it that way. No, 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 we can't not have that. Because I think um, a parent has good reason to want to set it up in this way. A parent, you know, there is good reason to make sure that there are five of these and not four of these, or that they're put in the right spot. So I think part of that, you know, when I go in, either to a family's home or when I'm working with a family, I don't just want to change that for the sake of changing it. I do want to have a discussion around it is, you know, you have, you know, it sounds like there have been some moments where it hasn't gone well when you've tried to change it. And I want to sort of have that discussion of what if, would you be okay if I just change the one thing, right? And I think oftentimes more so than not, 
the parent is okay with it. Maybe because it's me, right? It's, uh, it's another person and they get to almost maybe step back a little bit and say, okay, it's, it's okay. And because I think oftentimes parents are also curious, maybe it was something that has occurred to them, but they were a little bit nervous to try it, understandably so. So I feel like, I feel like we need to give a concrete example. I don't know if this is a good example or not, but every time my son used to go to the OT when he was really little, he went for that racetrack marble thing where the car rolls down and then it rolls down the other way and then it rolls down lower the other way. It's like a ramp that goes back and forth, like the letter Z, Z, <laughs> Z, Z, depending on where you're listening from. Um, so he always wanted to go for that toy. So you're saying, what if one day that toy wasn't there anymore? Is the child going to search for it? And that would be the floor time sessions. Hmm, where could it be? Let's right. look for it. And you're, and the parents worried, oh no, they're going to have a meltdown and not want to come back because that toy's not going to be there. Is that right. an example of what you're talking about? Yeah, for sure. I think that could be an example. And how I would think about that is one, in some ways, if, it's always something that's there. I might want to check in with the parent either the previous time or just before we get in the room to say, okay, so this is the plan today. I don't have it available or I put it up on the shelf or something like that. Because oftentimes I will check with the parent first, A, because how are they feeling about it? And B, because if I do it right before the session, the parent can also provide some insight as to he or she has already had a really difficult day. So then that might not be the day that we want to try out this, this new thing that the child has never experienced before. So I also want to make sure like I, you know, surprising the kid or the child is one thing, surprising the parent on top of surprising the child, you know, I want to be able to support the parent, right? Mm -hmm. And for them to know what the plan is, because I think that can sometimes um, ease all of our nerves a little bit, if they know sort of what the plan is, and if we're all on board. Because I think that's the other important thing is, as a clinician, I might have lots of different fun, novel ideas, but a parent might be a little bit more um, uh, hesitant to try that. And I think my approach, as opposed to just sort of barreling through or pushing my agenda, has always been to understand some of that hesitancy a bit more. And if you want to think of it from a relationship perspective, build my relationship with the parents so that they feel okay maybe doing it in some small capacity or maybe toward the end, right? There's, I think, lots of ways that we can sort of approach it so it's maybe not as jarring, right? Because I think um, it's important to me always to have the parent on board, right? And to really sort of have that negotiation or discussion about if you think, you know, if a parent using the same example that you just suggested, no, 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 you know, my child really likes that. I would be nervous. I would be nervous that the whole session would be, you know, we wouldn't get anywhere. So then, you know, we could talk about um, uh, sort of, obviously there are the, the DIR things about different things that we can do with it, different ways that we can play with it, but we can also, you know, um, and it would depend on so many different factors as in, um, if the child always starts with it, but then goes on to something else, then is that okay, right? Are there things that we all start with that sort of maybe provide some sense of calming for the child at the beginning of a session? It's a different thing than if a child is only interested in that one toy for the entire session, then I think my approach um, might be different. Um, so there's a lot of different layers to it, but at the end of the day, I think my the priority for me is to always um, figure out how to team up with the parent, figure out um, what the parent might be thinking, what they're worried about, what they're um, nervous, what they think might happen if the toy wasn't there. Because I think that's a part of the process too, is actually verbalizing, well, if it's not there, it's just going to go downhill, right? Mm -hmm. it's, you know, um, and so, you know, that might lead to a discussion of are there things in other environments and has your child ever has he ever him or her has he ever have they ever surprised you by not wanting it and how would they know if it's always there right, right. so I think those important discussions help to help the clinician to understand a bit more 
a sort of what the what the what what those anxieties might be on the part of the parent where they're coming from and how we can work with it because i think it's important not to just set them aside because obviously they're coming from previous experience with the child it's coming from knowing the child as well as parents do so i think those are all valid especially if i'm coming in perhaps as a newer clinician to the family I think I, it, it's my job to take that in and to understand that as opposed to insist on my own agenda without thinking of the parents. So we really are looking at the why behind the behavior in the parents. And yes. it's almost like doing floor time with the parents, meeting the parent where they're at, respecting their individual differences, and then moving forward once the parent is regulated and they're not all anxious and worried then we can engage them then we can get the back and forth and then sort of proceed with moving the child along as well right i mean that's that's one of the things i used to talk a lot about when i taught dir203 that course around coaching is it really is in parallel we are really having um, to think about the adult as well as the child. So whether that's, um, whether we're coaching a teacher or we're coaching a parent, they're very different, but at the same time, we do have to take into consideration um, where the adult is coming from or where the parent is coming from and, and what might be driving um, some of what their ideas are or what they're, um, how they're contributing to the interaction. And I think always, I mean, I don't mean to say that the focus then is moved to the adult or moved to the parent, because I think as still the, the child clinician, my focus is still on the child. But because if I'm trying to encourage interaction between that child and the parent, then I have to consider what the parent brings to the table as well. And so obviously there are, um, there are parents who may require more support than what I would be able to provide as a child or family clinician. And I would definitely encourage them to access those supports. But in terms of what they're bringing to the interaction and what, um, what they're, uh, understand a little bit about their profile, what, what supports them, um, I think those are, you know, I found that those, it's critical because once I have a better understanding of that, I'm better able to think of and support their interaction together. Because otherwise it's a bit like working with sort of a box that I don't know what's inside. And it can be very difficult then you're trying to, because I don't, um, and I think in Diara, we don't approach our work um, with parents as, I want you to just do this, do this mm -hmm. because this is what your child needs, right? Because I don't think that's fair. And then that's also not building upon what the parent naturally brings to the interaction. And that has always been one of my mottos, especially if I'm starting with a new family, is I want to build on what you're alre what's already working. And I think right. sometimes parents are very humble and they'll tell me, oh, I don't know, or, you know, but there's got to be, and with everybody that I've worked with, there's always a place to start that they already have. Sometimes it's a matter of finding it, um, finding out what it is, because maybe um, parents um, aren't able to just describe it, but through, if I can observe it, if I can see it, if it comes out, then that's what I take and I build off of versus me coming in and saying, I think you should both play with this. And right. I think this is where we'll build the interactions. So it's a little bit different. And I, I hear DIR clinicians saying that to parents all the time. Whenever the parent starts with a question, they'll say, what do you like doing with your child? Describe to me how you have fun together. And that's a good starting place. And it, and it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be a structured thing. It doesn't have to be, um, it can just be sort of what do both of you enjoy doing together. And that's enough to give a clinician somewhere to start because we and, can take parts of that interaction and think of how we can expand it and um, broaden it. And if listeners want to check the last podcast I did with Eunice, Self-Regulation Starts With Us, we did give some examples of that mismatch, like where a, a parent is uncomfortable in a situation and you can see that it's not going to work. We need to change the environment to a place where 
the parent is more comfortable. And in, in some other podcast, I don't remember, I gave the example of how I would never do floor. I think it was with Christy Gozi. I would never do floor time playing on the grass outside with my son because I'm so uncomfortable outside, like with bugs and stuff flying around and whatever, like I'd, I'd be so dysregulated the whole time. That's not an ideal place for me. Um, and as you know, uh, another environment that my husband might be uncomfortable in is my environment that I'm comfortable in. So you each have to find your own ways of sharing joy with your child. Um, what do you do if you are reviewing videos with parents and something jumps out to you as really, really obvious, but the parent just isn't getting it. And you're trying to make that awareness like, oh, do you notice what happened when you said this? Do you see your child doing anything different? And they literally aren't seeing it. So I don't know if that's a lack of self-awareness. It could be that. It, it could be something else. But uh, Dr. Glavinsky has said in, in the past, we've we, we've had a number of conversations in podcasts about how you were raised yourself affects how you raise your children. So if someone in the past said, it's not good to do this, you tend to do that with your own children. Um, and there may not be self-awareness around that until Dr. Glavinsky brings it up. And he's, of course, a psychologist. But um, what do you do? Um, so... When I review video or when I'm meeting with families and we're talking about some of, we're trying to tackle some of these issues, I usually, my mode of thought is to start with the really broad questions, right? So I'll ask a really open-ended question. And just like you said, there are some families who, who might be missing or are seeing something else than what I'm trying to get at, right? So I think of sort of it's, that's like that broad question is that first layer. And then I might ask a more specific question, right? So I'm really trying to get at, but what were, you know, what was the child looking at or what were you looking at or something like that? That's a little bit more that really helps the parent maybe focus a little bit more on what I'm trying to get at. And then perhaps, you know, the parent also, you know, is seeing something else. Um, and so we acknowledge what they're seeing and then I might get obviously a little bit more directed with my question is, you know, and it might end up after a few sort of cycles of questions, almost being a yes, no. But do you think he was engaged with you at that, in that moment, right? And I think that there have been maybe a small handful, but there certainly has been a handful of parents who still think no. So I might be, so my point in, in sort of that discussion with the parent might've been like, oh, but this was such a great, great moment that the two of you looked like you were engaged. And even with all those questions, the parent's result could be, no, I don't see that, right? And I think that to me is a good challenge or a good situation to have because it can open up more discussion. Because at that point, then I would ask the parent, so what do you, what, what would you define as, or can you give me examples of when you thought you and your child, when you are engaged? Because mm -hmm. I think that's a really good step to understanding for clinicians is that if we're trying to get at something that we think is important, but the parent's focus is completely somewhere else, then I need to understand what the parent's focus is and what their idea maybe of engagement in this example is because it's not good enough if I just said wasn't that a great moment you guys were so engaged because oftentimes parents will out of politeness and maybe out of some you know uh because they're there's parents are so respectful of professionals right but as a mental health clinician I'm not trying to get at the politeness I'm trying to actually better understand where the parent's coming from so it's almost when the parent doesn't agree I see that as an opportunity to sort of further that discussion and it gives me more insight into what the parent is expecting. So maybe if they thought, I think that for my child, you know, my child is engaged with me only when X, Y, Z, then that helps to tell me I need to be able to talk to this parent and help them understand a bit more what engagement is. Mm -hmm. And that becomes the focus 
not saying, well, you're, you know, obviously no, no one's going to say, oh, well, you're wrong or, you know, that this is, but it helps me to understand, you know, to know I need to focus part of our discussion. Part of our work needs to be around understanding what engagement is because in DIR, there are more abstract terms that are more challenging to explain or to describe. And then I guess bringing it back to the self-awareness piece and to feel, especially with something like engagement, right? It's not a, it's not a checkbox. It's not a concrete skill that you can say, see there, everybody would agree that it's there, right? Um, uh, it's not a three block tower sort of check, check, you know, that's easier to recognize whether it was accomplished or, or not, but something like engagement, um, and we've, I've certainly had those discussions where the parent, you know, that led to really interesting discussion about what they thought, what their understanding was, or maybe what their goals were. Yeah, and for us, some parents, it might just be, if they're not looking at me and speaking verbally with me, then I don't see that as engagement. And until my child gets there, I, I don't know what to do. Right. <laughs> That's right. And so for a professional to continue celebrating all those milestones before then without realizing what the parent's understanding of engagement is, is less meaningful mm -hmm. right? because we're actually not like, it doesn't matter to me as much whether I'm like, woo, you know, celebrating that I want to help the parent to see that. And I see that as part of my role as a clinician. And so, but part of that is getting at oftentimes parents may not be able to say that right off the bat, right? But it's through building the relationship or the rapport, therapeutic rapport, and then through the use of, you know, specific questions that we get at, you know, that point, which is that's what they've been shooting for all this time or aiming for all this time. And so at least, you know, still the clinicians and the parents might still kind of be in different places, but at least we know where the parents at and we know where our work has to be and helping them understand and use that DIR lens. I could think of a number of ways we could go and have 20 other podcasts from here, but I will say that I am going to be recording a follow-up podcast with Dr. Robert Nassif in a few weeks for parents that are listening. I think one of the topics we could go to is what about that parent who's just stuck on but my nephew is doing this. I want my child to do the same thing. And until they do that, I'm a failure. My child's a failure. And they just can't get that out of their head. And I think that gets to the whole parent grief process of accepting that your child is not the child you expected and how to move forward to see the child's strengths in the child that you have in front of you. And more on that with Dr. Robert Nassif in a few weeks. But um, great, I'll have, to, I'll have to tune in for that one. Yeah, um, the first one I, I did with him called Ambiguous Loss uh, covered a lot of that, but we're going to take it uh, a step further. And I've, I've heard him speak about fathers and the role of fathers, and mm -hmm. it's been very powerful. Yes, we're going to speak about that for sure this time, because the first time was mostly general parents, and this time we're going to speak specifically about fathers, but also uh, taking that grief step a step further too. But I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you about today was what about the parents who, and it's a two sort of a two-part question, what about the parents who absolutely won't film themselves? And maybe it's not that they won't, but they aren't. So they say they will, but then they don't. Um, and then they really don't want to. And does and then second part of that question is does that say anything about their self-awareness so is it harder for people who are less self-aware to watch themselves on camera and maybe that's a question that we don't even need to address maybe that's a question for psychotherapists i don't know but um yeah that that's hard because a lot of people are really uncomfortable filming themselves and they feel put on the spot and they feel judged and they they feel scrutinized and they're really uncomfortable with that. And Dr. Glavinsky might say that comes back to the way they were raised. If they were criticized a lot as a child, maybe that's why they feel that way. But that aside, how do you move forward with those parents? I think those are all very valid things. I think being recorded 
playing with your child, playing with a child um, is a strange, a bit of a strange phenomenon. Um, uh, I think, you know, depending on if um, this wasn't COVID and if I was, um, if I was able to find meeting with the child and the parent in person, to do that, I think I might start with sort of, would it be okay to film for them to film me um, playing with the child first, right? For maybe part of the session, because I do think, and I recognize that even for clinicians, we talk about, there's always a sort of a comfort level, right? So initially none of us like to see ourselves on camera. Um, it's, you know, it's nerve wracking, it's potentially embarrassing. And we notice all sorts of things that we didn't notice um, while we were playing with the child. So I think there's a certain degree of comfort level in that. And so what I might, how I might approach it is initially using um, the videos of me playing with the child as part of that jumping off board um, to more of those discussions. And I think I would sort of ease into the, if I was trying to use video, for example, um, if the parent wanted to share some of their progress, maybe in between sessions, right? Or talk about um, moments or challenging moments or sort of moments where that par parent, he or she might feel stuck, right? In terms of, I don't know what to do with my child when this happens. So I might use the video as well, you know, that might be a really good, it's hard, I think for a clinician who might see a family for one hour a week to see everything. And so that's also another sort of explanation or um, rationale that I, I offer to families sometimes why video might be helpful, right? Because I'm not in their home all the time and I'm not able to see. And the same thing might be if you're a clinician who provides services in a clinic setting and maybe the parent will say, well, he, my child is completely different at home. So that would be another rationale for, you know, what would really help me in order for me to be able to provide strategies is to be able to see what it is that you're talking about. Um, and maybe then, so we, I would, I always sort of ease into it. So whether it's maybe is, is the parent okay with maybe first filming just the child, right? Maybe the child and a sibling and then move towards a point where one parent can film, you know, something. And maybe it starts with also something that the child enjoys doing. So it's a positive, right? So we're not looking for those really challenging moments, but we're looking for, you know, my child loves it when we play this or when we do this. I'd love to see that. What does that look like? It would be so helpful for me as a clinician. And if it's a two-parent household, that the parent can film each other. So I think it's, it's something gradual that you can build over time that also builds, I found, when um, the parent's also a little bit more aware and knowledgeable about what DIR is, what this work is going to look like. So something, if it's something that's sort of offered to them or suggested right off the bat, they can be a little apprehensive, understandably so, because they don't know what this work is going to look like. I have found that sort of with more, you know, as we build that relationship, some parents, not all parents, I think I still had some parents who were a little reticent about it. And that's just a respectful, you know, that's okay then we'll, can we talk about filming here, maybe at the clinic, or can we talk about um, then just filming myself and the child, which is okay as well. And, that, and that's what we work with. We work well within keeping everybody um, comfortable and, um, and so that sort of we can, we can go from there. I think we, we, can, we can, that certainly gives us a lot to work with. Yeah, those are some good suggestions because I, I know that even the, even if the parent gets over that first hurdle of filming, the first films are always like without exception, them saying, oh, I wasn't sure what to film. I didn't know if it was good enough to film. And thinking that there's something that needs to be filmed when really it's not about the something, it's about just seeing the interaction and the way, the way things are between you and your child. Right, and so, and that's why, filming the clinician and the child first can really model what it is that we're um, going for, right? Because we're not going to look at it and go, well, this is, you know, this is sort of, they're going to, 
I guess parents are going to understand a bit more what the discussion would be about. So it's not about whether this was the perfect interaction. It was about, oh, look, the child, and obviously I would make sure to do this, um, you know, I missed, I missed cues, or I was too fast, or I was too slow. And I think that's sort of, you know, what I want to give them, um, both, that's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of good discussion material, but that's also gives them a bit of a, an awareness of what might we be talking about if it was my video, right? Mm -hmm. And so that hopefully eases some of those um, anxieties around, you know, I need to come up with the perfect video because, you know, uh, A, there's oftentimes aren't really any perfect videos and there's lots to discuss with any videos. And that's the other thing I tell parents is even if it's a short clip, and that's, uh, I think sometimes the other um, hurdle is that parents might think that we're looking for 60 minute clips, but we're, whereas we're all, you know, even with a three to five minute clip, um, there is so much that we can just talk about that um, there's, you know, there's so many opportunities to see some of what um, the work, what the work is looking like, where things are going. Um, I can learn a lot and clinicians can learn a lot about the child um, in a short video clip. For sure. And I think last thing that came to mind, and then we'll wrap it up. The other thing um, I'll see is parents who will film themselves, but they're really trying to showcase what their child can do, which is great because we want to focus on strengths um, and feeling maybe discouraged if they feel like, um, I don't know that they necessarily feel like we're pointing out deficits because that's not really what we do in floor time. We're more encouraging interaction, but do you know what I mean? That the parents are less filming them doing floor time or playing with their child and more showing off things that their child can do like memorized things or skill sets or things like that. I think we, I have seen that um, and sort of my, how I would understand that is that sort of uh, it does give the clinician information about sort of how the child, um, what type of structured activities that parent and child might be doing at home. And so um depending on sort of how long I had been working with the family, I might ask about sort of whether there are ever any more unstructured things and that the interaction during structured games or activities is a lot more, um, it's a lot more set, right? In terms of, you know, um, they each take a turn with certain things or the child is might be labeling things or whatever that task might be. And so I might frame it to the parent as, well, let's talk about some of the ways that maybe we can challenge. What's the just right challenge for this child right now? And so hopefully in our sessions, or maybe either when, when myself as the clinician, when I'm in the home or when the child comes to the clinic, um, there, we might be doing things that are more unstructured, right? That are more open-ended, which are more traditionally DIR based. And so I think what it opens the door is having that conversation around how open-ended activities work in the home, maybe what the parent is comfortable with and how to, you know, start giving them some ideas about maybe what they could do at home that's still somewhat predictable. Maybe if I can use that word, because maybe, you know, that, because then I might get a better understanding of maybe that the parent is worried that if it's too unstructured, things could go awry. Or, you know, is it an issue of supplies or space or things like that that are very tangible things that I think need to be talked about. And to acknowledge that maybe if, you know, the clinic space is different than the home space, right? That we're not, we're not saying that you have to have a room filled with toys, right? Because maybe for this particular family, it's a room, but there's three siblings and there's a lot of different things as well that are factoring in. I think those are important for the clinician, for myself to learn about and to find out about. So I would use that um, if a parent um, is showing me that, I would use that as a, as a jumping off point to more discussion 
and more understanding that I might have to do about what, what is going on at home and how I can be of help, even if I don't go into the home, right? If my, my sir, if they do sort of come into a clinic space to see me, um, there can be sort of ways that I might be able to provide some suggestions about how to make some of those open-ended activities work better at home for within that family's parameters. Well, I think we can sum up today, if you agree with me, I'm not sure, as when the parent is seen and heard and felt, it's much easier for them to then see, hear, and feel their child. And that's what we're fostering with the floor time coaching. I think that's a good way to sum it up. I think that's a good way to sum it up. And I think that's where we get more of that self-awareness, I feel like, as well, is when they're thoughts and their, you know, their feelings are acknowledged. So I think that's an important piece of DIR work that we all do within our disciplinary, I think, perspectives. Obviously, as a mental health clinician, I'm able to dive into it a little bit more. But I think even as speech language pathologists or occupational therapists, there's a way that um, they can acknowledge it within their professional parameters. Um, because I think acknowledging it is a big piece of it. It's a big piece of the work that sort of that we need to do in order to support their interaction. Well, on that note, Eunice, I'm going to be jumping into my online parent support group with ICDL in a little while. So all of this stuff's going to be running through my head as I hear what's on the minds of parents in the DIO world today. <laughs> So thank you so much for spending time and sharing all of this incredible wisdom with us. I think it's helpful for practitioners and for parents. And I will be writing up the, the synopsis of what we discussed today and links to some of the other podcasts I referred to at affectautism.com. Thank you so much, Eunice. Thank you for having me. Until next time, here's to Affecting Autism Through Play.